whole football focus doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. As a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PFL. Do you not understand that they are that way because you're Joe Flacco? And you just like to discredit things that people deserve credit for. That you can't possibly be expected to defend that. Talk about the game, Sam. So Who cares about what people think about us? Yeah, I like football, I like football season, and all the things that go with it. Welcome into the PFF NFL podcast. We're back live on YouTube. Steve Palazzolo, Sam Monson discussing the biggest NFL draft storylines. Part two. Mm-hmm. Yesterday we went through the very biggest. That's why they were at the top of the show. But we've got even more to discuss today. We've got teams that need offensive line help, Sam. We have a whole bunch of polarizing players. We'll go through all the polarizing players in this draft. We've got emails. We have just a great action pack show. How you doing? Doing good, Steve. I uh, got the vaccine this morning. Yeah? Little, little jab. You're good? Yeah. Apparently, the arm is supposed to stop working at some point. Just become painful, stiff, so we'll see how it goes. It's okay at the moment. That's good. Yeah. I hope I hope you just, like, collapse randomly through this. <laughs> can't, can't adjust your mic or something like that. You'll be all right. It's fine. It's fine. It's good. We're, good. we're not a problem. I think you'll be good. So, uh, tell your friends, we're live right now over on YouTube. Let's go through some more NFL draft storylines. I want to start with the offensive line because there is, uh, th- there are a lot of first-round caliber tackles. Uh, the PFF draft board over at PFF.com. Go check it out because it's been reshuffled again in the last week. We have one, two, three, four, five, six, six offensive tackles in the top 32. We have a guard slash tackle at 34 in Elijah Vera Tucker, and then another one, two, three, four, four others in the top 60. So for teams that really need offensive line help, there is at least on paper options, but there are some massive offensive line needs out there from the Colts left tackle to the Steelers to the Chargers. How do you think this thing? Uh, Man, you know, teams up? like the Vikings just need the line, all of it. The Vikings. Yeah. So, th- so there's a lot of O line <clears throat> needs out there. Just remember, last year at this time, the Bucks came in with a very specific, "Hey, we need a starting right tackle," yep. and they got it. They got the best tackle in the draft class last year after year one in Tristan Wirfs. But on the other end of the spectrum, Andrew Thomas of the Giants was the first tackle off the board. Struggled a little bit. Uh, you have in the middle of that the Browns, uh, Jedrick Wills. They needed a starting left tackle badly. They get him. So. Uh, there's a lot of needs that need to be filled on draft night here. Yeah, there are. I mean, it's, it's another good year for offensive linemen. Um, I think last year, obviously, was a really good tackle class, which is the first time in, probably since we've been doing this that that's true. We started grading college in, what, 2014. Um, last year, I think, was the first good tackle class we'd actually seen come into the NFL. This, one, this is another one. Um, and I think you can definitely make the case that this year is stronger, if anything. Um, a lot comes down to... I think the very top where you are in Panay Sewell and, and how confident you are in him. In our eyes, he is this sort of generational talent to tackle. There's a lot of people that are cooling on him, though. He's got his pro day today, which will be interesting if he goes crazy, if he does something nuts with the numbers. But 
Um, I think a lot depends just how good you think Panay Sewell is. What are you giggling at? Somebody uh, updated me on one of my takes. Said he agrees. Oh, yeah? Somebody agreed with my take that uh, Mac Jones isn't the guy for the Niners. That was just posted on the social media account. Okay. So, that's all. BMJ, please. What? BMJ. Oh, yeah. No, wait. BMJ? Dad, M- what DB. DBJ. Wow. The Dad bod. Vaccine's already messing with my brain. Just completely substituted letters great. Can we get What's a... BMJ. Who, who's my new co-host when you fall apart here? I don't know. Maybe so, I'll have to go solo for a couple hours while I just keel over in the chair. So, let's go through some of the teams that just have either specific or massive offensive line needs the Colts left tackle situation we've talked about a little bit uh I wonder if they're gonna try to well I mean they they almost certainly have to go to the draft here there was talk about moving Quentin Nelson to left tackle Mm. do you think they're just gonna wait and see what happens in the draft or are they locked in to a Christian Darasaw uh Dylan Ray Duns all these uh you know Samuel Cosme all these guys that could be middle to late first round picks I mean, I think that's definitely where they're going to be looking. Um, I don't know if they're locked into it. They, they're in this interesting position now where um, obviously they don't have a quality starting left tackle. They've signed a couple of guys to sort of throw at the position to see what would stick. Um, Sam Tevy, Julian Davenport. You don't want either of them starting at left tackle, particularly not when your quarterback is Carson Wentz. So they have to be looking there in the draft. But I, I'm intrigued to to as to what they would do if say there was a run on tackles in the first round before they pick and the guy that they're left with is just not someone that they like right would they take him anyway because they think they need a starting left tackle and you know beggars can't be choosers or are they prepared to to essentially say nope we don't like that guy we're gonna go a different way and hey look a, an Alejandro Villanueva is still a free agent. We can sign him after the draft and maybe address it that way or you know, something like that. There's a couple of those guys still out in the open market. It's riskier because you know, you, who the hell knows if somebody's going to sign those guys before that point. But potentially that's the game of chicken they're willing to play is, all right, let's be patient. Let's see how the draft falls. And if it doesn't go our way, there is still an option. Yeah, I mean, I I think the safer play for the Colts was always to to get the veteran first. Yeah. Right? So you don't necessarily have to – you don't have to worry because you think you're a playoff team, right? The Colts are a playoff team, and, you're, and you need to do what's best from Car, uh, by Carson Wentz. And, again, just looking at last year's first-round offensive tackles, uh, Andrew Thomas, Tristan Wirfs, Mekhi Becton – and Jedrick Wills in there. There was some good, there was some bad in there from a first-round offensive tackle standpoint. You want to have that security. And yeah, Alejandro Villanueva, Villanueva, yikes, and Russell Okung still out there. Uh, And, you know, even if it's on a one-year deal or a a short-term deal, I think that might be the play for the Colts. And then, you know, grab another guy in the draft for the future. Uh, What other lines, uh, you know, the Bengals are a big, hot topic here you know they bring in uh riley reef to play tackle what was the other they brought one other did they i thought, that was it. I thought well riley reef to play tackle which might not do anything keep them keep them away oh. from Panay Sewell, rashawn slater whoever else they might be looking at at tackle they've got some more work to do on the interior of the offensive line so the Bengals are one of those stories. And one, I think when we get to the polarizing players, too, we could debate Panay Sewell versus Rashawn Slater. There's a whole lot of debate over the top offensive tackle in the draft. 
Yeah, the Bengals are interesting, though, because they're also going to be debating, do you reunite Joe Burrow with his college wide receiver, Jamar Chase? Or do they just say, look, we have to take offensive linemen? We're still in a bad place. Um, I think you could definitely argue, though, that they have a more acute need on the interior than they have a tackle, which is, again, also problematic because— At least short term. Yeah, because yeah, your, your debate is basically Sewell, probably, assuming you have him as the number one, Sewell or Chase. Like, where do you want to go, wide receiver or tackle? Um, you could make the case that their most desperate need is guard or you know something on the interior— and maybe they can then for maybe that is what convinces them to go with Jamar Chase at at the top and come back in the second round for an interior offensive lineman and and feel better about passing up on a guy like um, Panay Sewell because you're like well we don't have a, that bad a need at tackle we have a desperate need on the inside and you know Jamar Chase is special plus the Burrow connection maybe that's how they ju- they um, justify it explain it what's the word I'm looking for. Maybe that's how they, you know, talk it out. What the hell is the term? My brain is wrecked today. This thing, warning, don't be getting the uh, the vaccine before you're about to talk for a couple of hours because apparently your brain's going to shut down. That's good. My monologue uh, dream. Yeah, it's, it's going to happen. happen. Don't worry. I'll, Steve uh, Palazzolo show I'll coming you know to you live. I just go to sleep in the chair. <laughs> Let's discuss the Pittsburgh Steelers. Maybe I'll do most of the talking here. Yeah. A, a completely overhauled offensive line. We've mentioned Alejandro Villanueva. That is one of the Steelers' That is gone. Matt Filer is gone. Mm-hmm. They have... Hall of Famer Marquise Pouncey. And then center Marquise Pouncey. So three-fifths of the line uh, officially gone. And now you're talking about Zach Banner locked in as the starting right tackle. O- uh, Okorafor, Chukwuma Okorafor, locked in at left tackle at the moment. Kevin Dotson, who showed, showed, showed well as mm-hmm. a rookie playing left guard. J.C. Hassenauer or B.J. Or Finney. B.J. Finney playing center. And then David DeCastro at right guard. So you're talking about both guard positions I think are going to be okay. Both tackle positions have question marks, but they've invested in Zach Banner. So we're talking about a Steelers team probably looking for a starter at tackle and at center hmm. in the NFL draft. That's risky for a team that is just trying to run it back one more time with Ben Roethlisberger this season. It really is. It looks... It honestly looks like a bridge too far in terms of what they can actually achieve and hope to succeed doing that. I mean, Ben Roethlisberger, again, is reaching that point of, like, he needs the offensive line more than he's needed it in the past. It's like Phillip Rivers. The last year, Phillip Rivers went and was behind the best offensive line he's been behind in his entire career, which was good because Rivers at that point in his career needed protection in a way he didn't when he was 5, 10 years younger. Roethlisberger is now in the same boat. He's reached that age where he needs the protection. And the offensive line is falling apart right at the wrong time. And however good or bad you thought that Marquise Pouncey was at center, he's probably going to be better than the, like the, the literal replacement player they're going to be putting in there unless they draft somebody. And you know, even if they draft somebody, the chances of replacing somebody at that caliber are not that great. So... I mean, I think that offensive line is going to be a problem. And again, now you also have to sort of desperately hope that they don't fall into the trap of being like, well, our run game has been bad. Let's draft a running back high and fix that because the reason your run game is bad is because your offensive line has fallen to pieces. The fans want that. I know. The fans really want that. Like, it's already a really hard landing to stick without you making it even harder by saying, well, the thing we really need to do to fix this is to draft a running back. Like... 
you're already working with an, a very small number of outs here. Don't reduce it even further. This reminds me a little bit of the Falcons a couple years ago, right? They had a really good all-around roster. And it start, and all of a sudden, right tackle Ryan Trader just stops playing well. You know, and that's, that's a tough thing from a team-building standpoint. Unanticipated, it, just falls off a cliff. Players. Yeah, kind of like when Rob Havenstein did it a couple years ago. At least he bounced yeah. back. But Schrader, you get this, like, one of the most solid right tackles in the league, and all of a sudden he can't play. And, and that your guard situation was already kind of bad in Atlanta, but you could hide it because you had four other offensive linemen. So all of a sudden, Atlanta goes into the draft, and they take offensive linemen with their first two picks, Chris Lindstrom, Caleb McGarry, right? And, and Atlanta had other parts of their roster. They were just holding on for dear life in the secondary with their pass rush, with some of their other positions. But Atlanta had to address the offensive line. The same thing happened with the Houston Texans a few years ago. The mo more important parts of their roster were falling apart, particularly the secondary. And they had to use their first two picks on Titus Howard and uh, Max Sharping is what they did, right? So I could see if, if the Steelers go in and they're like, man, we need a starting center. Like if, if this is their scenario, they go Samuel Cosme or Dylan Radons, right? Starting tackle in the 20s. And then they come back and get Landon Dickerson starting center in, in the second round. That would be one of those moves that's like, all right, we had to get the offensive line back on track, but it is just really difficult to digest as their secondary gets a little bit worse and maybe their pass rush got a little bit worse. We'll see. And and they just and they don't have a running back, sure, but linebacker questions, uh, you know, defensive line, you you want to continue to reload there. So all these other places that would make more of an impact and you and it just feels like you have to stitch up this offensive line that's been so good for years it's also just hard anytime you come into a draft situation needing more than one starter like it's hard enough just to get one guy who you're confident in will be an upgrade at the position and, and solidify the spot that you're drafting him for to have to get two at one position group i mean it's like the vikings essentially needing two starting cornerbacks last year or two out of their top three corners it's like it's not going to happen they hit gold by getting Cameron Dantzler, who for half the season played like a good starting cornerback. But that didn't help because one, the other guy didn't. Like Jeff Gladney played badly. The, the, other, the third corner that they had, whoever it was, rotating throughout the season, Mike Hughes, Holton Hill, like the third guy didn't play well either. So you're, you haven't achieved what you needed to. Just the draft is such a gamble still that needing to hit on two players at any one position group is just such a small chance of actually achieving that if that's the position you're going into the draft with you're asking for a headache year one the the and I'm only saying this for the Steelers because last year at this time they had a good offensive line the last five years or so they've had a really good offensive line so they're coming at it from a position of strength even though they, they didn't run block all that well last year and that was why they didn't run the ball well when they wanted to but they're coming at it from a position of strength. A team not coming at it from a position of strength, so maybe changing the narrative a little bit, is the Chargers. They're coming from a position of 10 years of weakness and not having a good offensive line for the longest time. So as they invested this offseason in former Steeler Matt Filer, in the best center in the, on the free agent market in Corey Lindsley, the narrative here is like, well, they're moving in the right direction. Even though they're coming in with, you know, they could, uh, and they also bring in Ode Abushi to play right guard. So you're talking about three new starters to go with a new starter from last year and Brian Bulaga, great. They just need a, a left tackle that they can trust. Trey Pipkin, Pipkins 
currently locked in as the as the projected starter. So it's kind of like a different angle. I think the Chargers should look at left tackle in the yeah. first round, and and I'd be happy if they if Panay Sewell fell or if Rashawn Slater is there at thirteen or if Christian Darrisaw is there at thirteen. Great, I'm feeling good about where the Chargers are going. So it's kind of like they're in a similar position as the Steelers. Like we need a starter, especially a tackle. But for the Chargers, it's exciting because it's like you're st- one starter away from at least on paper being good again yeah, on the O-line. It's where you came from. Like, yeah. The Chargers had essentially no workable offensive line at any position. The Steelers, you don't have to go back very far for them having one of the best offensive lines in the NFL. So for them to suddenly need to plug two starting holes in the draft is a major disappointment for the Chargers. It's like, <laughs> we only have two holes on the offensive line? That's like a jackpot for us. That's the best we've been <laughs> in the last 15, 20 years. Oh, the poor Chargers, too. And look, I, I think there's a lot of times when the process is sound and it just doesn't work. I yeah. thought the Chargers have had decent process. Honestly, I think the Vikings had decent process through the years, at least attacking their offensive line. You know, they went and they, might, they may have overpaid for Riley Reef and Mike Remmers. The Chargers doubled up with Dan Feeney and Forrest Lamp a couple years ago in the draft, and things just didn't pay off. They tried. Yeah. But it just didn't pay off. Probably. The Remmers um, Riley Reef duo should have been more successful for Minnesota. I mean, in theory, those two should have been adequate, average um, starting offensive linemen. But I think what we saw is the the idea of offensive linemen being tofu, right? Like you need something outside of it to influence the Stick flavor tofu. of tofu. And they didn't. So what the, Or what they did, what they had was very bad ingredients outside of that. So they had these two lumps of tofu on the offensive line, and then everything else there was was awful. So the tofu started to taste like crap as opposed to what it should have been. Um, so I, I think that the Vikings actually is a really good example of that theory, that analogy actually holding up that, look, you do need something good. If you're going to have average players, it helps for those average guys to be surrounded by good players, and then they'll actually hold up. If they don't, if they're surrounded by bad, the average guys are going to look worse than they probably would have been. Treat back toward average, man. That's what you have to do. Um, any other teams that stand out? I just I want to discuss the Jets really quick, and we'll wrap it up on some of the offensive line discussion. The Jets are one of those teams, that, again, they attacked it in volume last year in free agency, just grabbed all sorts of players who had been good at one point, mm-hmm. and then draft Makai Becton in the first round. Becton ends up being their, their best offensive lineman as a rookie left tackle, but there's still plenty of question marks. Speaking of Dan Feeney, he comes in and uh, right now could be the starting center. Greg Van Roten is back. I think right tackle – remains a question mark with George Fance there, the guy that they invested in last year, who we said, look, you know, that's it's a risky move. He's never really played good football uh, as a tackle in his career. So the Jets on their second pick in the 20s could also be in this tackle market. And I think they're still in this debate of adding more playmakers and receivers or continuing to shore up that offensive line. I think they still have more work to do on the line and they have to address it. Same, and I think they have the picks to do that as well like like you say they have a second first round pick that's in the right kind of area I think they're in a good spot the team I think is that's more interesting for that is the Minnesota Vikings because they have their pick in the middle of the first round prime territory for the the tackle class they're in the right kind of area they pick what 14 that's the right spot for offensive linemen but then Minnesota doesn't have a second round pick they don't pick again until the third round are they willing to essentially take their one pick on day one or two was barring trades 
and dedicate that to an offensive tackle or an even even an interior offensive lineman when they have had a disastrous track record of identifying offensive linemen because this team has holes this team has some major issues still you know are they willing to to take that chance and risk you know getting nothing essentially from their prime picks if they screw it up all right you want to get into the most polarizing players here sure all right let's do it um did you get some suggestions from uh the twitter folks we got a lot of suggestions okay great twitter's Twitter's good for us it's good to us um most polarizing play well do you want to start who you got uh okay let's qb kellen mond is on the list yes because Uh, some people have him as a you know some people do (laughs) top three or four quarterback in this draft right is that where chris sims has him he's got him four is that right like when when the Niners were sitting there at twelve, he was thinking, "Fine, give him to Kyle Shanahan at 12. Mm. Kellen Mond. Now I'm on record four years ago or so saying, "Kellen Mond." I mean, it was really back in 2018 before the 2019 season. Kellen Mond, Mond is is going to be the guy that gets first round hype. The issue with him, I look, I I think every quarterback has this, but Mond in particular, there's enough on film that you could talk yourself into. This guy has first-round talent. He's got a good yeah. arm. He's got a little athleticism. Some of his best throws in his career have been in the red zone. And sometimes when you just see those tight red zone throws and it's like, man, that the ball location, he's shown, he's shown touch and velocity, all of it, right? Throw on the run ability. Kellen Mond has absolutely shown everything you want to see. So if you do grab that highlight reel of best 50 plays, all right, yeah, first-round caliber player. It, it's been the... It's been the throw-for-throw accuracy that's been a little bit, you know, lower than you would like to see and just overall PFF grades of just okay and never really dominated in college through that lens. Yeah, I I have a lot of time for the idea of Kalamond as a draft prospect, just not like in the, you know, not in the first round or anywhere crazy like that. He is the perfect example of what should be a second or third round quarterback prospect the developmental guy the guy that's shown flashes that has the tools to succeed at the next level but has enough question marks or enough you know iffy tape or just lack of dominant tape that you're not like sold you're not buying into it um 100 but like you don't need to i mean he graded well at the senior bowl which is always a good thing against elevated competition um yeah i, I think there's a lot of reasons to like him but i think anybody putting him in the top group with you know, the, the, the clear favorite quarterbacks of Lawrence, Wilson, Fields, Lance, and now Mac Jones, like he doesn't belong in that group of five, six if you added him. He doesn't belong with those guys unless you are essentially – unless you're only focused on can-do, right? Takes the boxes in terms of size, arm, measurables, can-do all these things, therefore is the same. Which isn't true, right? Because can do is only part of the equation. Can he do X, Y, and Z? And then how often does he do X, Y, and Z? And what happens in between? Yeah, just That's where he misses out compared to the others. Just looking at like PFF big-time throws over the last couple seasons, Mond, Mond only has 25. He has 25 big-time throws, 22 turnover-worthy throws. Almost a one-to-one ratio, which is, which is not good in college. So he has half as many big-time throws, less, less than half, as many as Trevor Lawrence, Justin Fields, uh, less than half of Zach Wilson over the last two years, 
almost uh, almost half of Mac Jones big time throws. Again, people are people are knocking Mac Jones for not you know no arm talent and no this or no that. Mac Jones has far more big time throws without the turnover worthy throws. So so the Kellen Mond can do is there like they are for for everybody and maybe his are a little bit more spectacular than others but it's just the how often isn't there 79 pff grade over the last two years passing grade for mond that's solid it's fine but when you're talking about projecting quarterbacks into the nfl most guys that have had success have had at least a year where they graded at 90 plus yeah. and you know have have performed at much at a much higher level in college he really is a he's a classic developmental guy where it's like all right all the, if you are of the opinion that we can take a block of clay and mold him into an NFL quarterback. Our coaching is that good. Like that classic arrogant hubris that NFL teams have of, yeah, we, you give me the tools, I can make it happen. If you think that's true, he's the guy because you don't have to spend a first-round pick on him, presumably. Um, and you could, in theory, you could get that kind of production because the talent is there. Like he's definitely got that kind of ceiling but the question is, like, you can't possibly as co- be as confident in that as you are with the guys that are going to go in the top 10 picks. Does someone in the NFL agree with Chris Sims? Probably. Somewhere someone in the NFL has Kellen Mond as QB4, QB3? Sure. Yes. Above, above Justin Fields, above Trey Lance, above Mac Jones? Well, apparently Justin Fields, there's questions about whether he, uh, he wants it hard enough. <sighs> yeah. I'm not, I'm not saying I believe that. I've just heard it. Don't start those rumors, Sam. <laughs> Don't build upon those uh, rumors. I haven't heard it outside of somebody else who heard it who probably shouldn't have said it. Is Kellen Mond even polarizing, or is just Chris Sims the only guy that thinks he's a first-rounder? I think I've seen somebody else have him ranked really high. I mean, I definitely saw somebody else, but they were a parody of the Chris Sims thing. So I think I've also seen a third independent party not taking the piss out of Chris Sims put Kellen Mond very high on their list. Okay, there you go. Um, how about Gregory Rousseau, uh, long edge defender from Miami? You know, I think he was he was one of the opt outs. So his his story is an interesting one, where it's like our teams. Here's the NFL story: our teams going to hold the opt out against players. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we were we were all asking us, ourselves that question coming into the season, and I don't know if that's the case so much as Gregory Rousseau was one of those classic players who needed another yeah. year. We see this all the time in college. Uh, where guys show flashes and do, you know, have a really good sophomore season. He was a redshirt sophomore in 2019, had 16 sacks, Russo. If you listen to PFF enough, don't overvalue the sack totals, the whole deal. His pass rush grade was good, not great, but he was like the prime breakout candidate in 2020. And if he had had that season, we're talking about a top 10 pick. Yeah, I think that's really the key. He is a great example of a player who actually had something to gain as well as lose by playing in 2020. You know, a lot of these guys, it's like, well, there's nothing really to gain. You know, Jamar Chase, right? What does he have to gain from playing in 2020? But he had a lot to lose. Like, he's coming off an amazing season. Um, leave it, Joe Burrow, the number one overall pick, was his quarterback, then departs. He's not going to be dealing with the same caliber of passer throwing him the ball, and his stock was never going to be higher. So, Jamar Chase only had downside to playing in 2020. Agreed. 100% the right decision to sit the hell out and never go near playing football that year. Rousseau, though, is a great case of a player who actually had something to gain as well as lose by playing. Sure, he could have played, could have caught COVID, could have whatever. He could have 
could have gone bad and not helped him. On the other hand, if he had played and taken another step forward in his development, he would have a phenomenal profile of a guy who would be the top edge rusher in this class. He went from, you know, not really playing at all in 2018, 2019 had a decent number of pressures, a decent PFF uh, pass rushing grade, 80.7. That's good, not great. If he'd taken that next step, if he, you know, had a, a season with a 90 pass rushing grade, had a ton of pressure, um, backed up the sack total again, now you would be looking at a guy and going, this guy is, with his freaky build, with his athleticism, his stock is going to the moon. Like, he's the guy. He's the edge rusher that's emerged from this class as the, the top guy. But he didn't. Like, he elected to not take the risk, and now you're, now he's just in this, this mix of, well, which guy do you – which gamble do you like the best? He's another guy who has hardly played any college football. Right. 546 snaps in his career now because of uh, the COVID situation. And, again, this isn't necessarily – we're not knocking his decision to opt out or anything. We're just saying in a non-COVID year, Gregory Rousseau probably plays, he plays football in 2020, probably improves, and again, is discussed as a six foot six, 260-pound potential first-round pick. So I think what happens with a guy like him, who, by the way, is now number five on our edge, uh, edge rusher list behind his teammate Jalen Phillips— I think when you look at a guy like Rousseau, I wouldn't touch him in the first round because of the question marks I saw on film in 2019. But he becomes an intriguing second rounder. If he's there in the second round, it's like if you thought he was going to take a jump his redshirt sophomore year in college, okay, maybe he takes that in the NFL now. By and the it's way, a steal. This guy's 6'6", 265, and played at times in high school as a wide receiver. Can you, can you imagine being a poor, like, five foot nine? 160-pound high school defensive back having to cover that? Well, that well, it's that's just the, unfair. Well, that's the other intriguing thing about him. And let me, let me diverge a little bit here. Okay. We mentioned yesterday on the podcast, go check it out, we theorized that NFL teams need to do a better job of saying, well, here's the guy's draft grade, but here's the confidence level that he gets there. Mm -hmm. And we got a very astute email from someone who wanted to protect his identity, hmm. a very astute email from another person in another sport, another person in another sport who evaluates players. Yes, a professional scout. In professional another scout. Sport. Another sport. Can't mention the sport, the team, or the person, or the person. None of it. We'll call him it's Joe. Very, very anonymous. We'll call him Joe. I hope that wasn't his name. <laughs> Let me check. Let's call him Joe from another sport. But I thought Joe had a very astute point, which said, "Hey, we do this, you know." And and the difference is, so using PFF grades, let's just say you call a guy a ninety, and. Um, you know, you have a 90 with a confidence level of a of an 8, which is different from a 90 with a confidence level of a 5, mm. right? It's like this guy could reach a 90, but we're, you know, percentage points more confident yeah. in one guy versus the other. Yeah, um, and, you know, Ben Stockwell, our director of analysis, was saying, like, you could achieve the same thing essentially with what uh, the R&D guys are working with with the just the range of outcomes, you know, the bell curve, like where they're going to be positioned effectively achieves the same thing, right? Because that curve is going to look different depending on a guy's profile, a guy's grading, um, a guy's performance in, in college, and his athleticism. That curve is going – it's not the same curve for everybody just placed in a different spot. The curves themselves are different. So that effectively achieves the same thing, right? It's, it's applying that confidence rating to the grade that you have. And, and 
really what we just want is to give team is to allow teams to start quantifying that part of it because it is clearly an important element that yeah look first of all we want to know how good is this guy and then we want to know how confident are we in what we're saying and i think that is a thing that differs player to player and has to be relevant to the sort of game theory of the draft let's go to the offensive lineman uh, Rashawn Slater and Panay Sewell. I don't know if they're necessarily polarizing. We're going through our most polarizing players in the NFL draft. But Panay Sewell, did we start the hype just because his grades were so, so incredible? The best true soft, the best true freshman season we've ever seen, the best season we've ever seen from a, for a power five, five offensive tackle. I don't think we started it, but like we were riding the wave. We were riding the wave, right? Yeah. We were there, and it looked like, all right, Panay Sewell's the – most generational tackle we've seen. He looks like the safest tackle prospect. I mean, he did all this stuff at a young yeah. age. Anybody that was into offensive linemen, and you know, there's that subset of Twitter. Those guys were all all over Panay Sewell as like, you know, the the hipster's choice at the top of the draft. It's like, yeah, it's Trevor Lawrence and blah blah. blah but Panay Sewell is like freaky generational as well. And then suddenly, as we get closer to the draft, more and more people are going. You know what? Rashawn, not only is he not even generational, he's not even the best tackle in this group. Rashawn Slater is is ahead of him, and he's slipping into the teens somewhere. Which again, I just I don't quite get that. I, I don't know what's happening around the NFL. With that, is that another? I, I, look, I I can see. We we're talking about Justin Fields and his stock dropping or whatever. I could see why people would be critical of Justin Fields and be a little scared of par- parts of his game. Yeah. Easy Ohio State offense and, and the, the bad the bad stuff on Fields' tape is maybe worse than some of the others in the draft class. I really can't see what people wouldn't like in Panay Sewell other than maybe he doesn't pancake enough people. Not enough pancakes on on film. He just blocks them. He, he merely play. blocks them. He doesn't, you know. So I is this a case of the Bengals or it doesn't even have to be them some other team drumming up all this you know Rashawn Slater OT1 nonsense I, mean, I think it's nonsense to to put Panay Sewell uh, a little bit lower in the draft I'm sure that's a part of it but some of some of it is coming from like tape evaluators people that are actually going through the tape and yeah. deciding for themselves no, you know, I, I'm concerned a little bit by this, and I like Slater better. I shouldn't have said nonsense. It's not nonsense. Everybody can have their own opinion. Nothing's cu- clear and cut and dry. <laughs> but you strayed from the fence for a brief moment. I did. And I had to jump back on. Well, here's the other thing. Rashawn Slater, of all the guys, like, he's 6'4", 304. You know, historically, this is a guy you're like, oh, no, too short. He's got to go to guard. 33-inch arms. He's got to move to guard. And, and it's like... The NFL is scared to death of a six foot four tackle with thirty three inch arms. So you're telling me the NFL is taking Rashawn Slater and saying, "Nope, he's so good at everything else, he's the best offensive tackle in the draft." And look, we we have him as the second best offensive tackle. No, again, nothing's clear cut and dry. I just don't see how you put him over Panay Sewell. Yeah, I mean, Slater's I think, an awesome athlete, but Sewell is too. I think that's the key: is that okay? Let's say he's really good. Let's agree that he's in a, a, he's an elite. Um, tackle what did he do to jump ahead of Panay Sewell because all, like, Sewell's another one of these guys that didn't play last year um, so hasn't done anything to ding his draft stock like it's exactly the same as it was when everybody was going through his tape fawning over how amazing this dude is 
all he's done is gotten a year older and not had wear and tear on his body. So why, like, why, how can you now have decided that, oh, you know what, there's flaws here that we weren't really seeing before, and that's a problem. Like, he's, I, I don't, I don't understand. To me, right now, there's a few players who were just overthinking. I think we're overthinking Justin Fields because he's the guy that we've decided to focus on the negatives for at the top of the draft versus the other top quarterbacks. I think if you're if you were applying the same focus on the negativity around Justin Fields to each of the other top prospects, it would look a lot different. Like you can make easily the same negative case for Trey Lance and Mac Jones and Zach Wilson. It's harder for Trevor Lawrence, but I'm sure you could nitpick him if you wanted to. Um, but that's one, and then I think Panay Sewell is, is the other. Like, we are just, for some reason, being hypercritical of his flaws versus anybody else's. Somebody dropped in the comments, Daniel Jeremiah has Rashawn Slater over Panay Sewell because he thinks he's more technically sound. Uh, Slater does have far more snaps under his belt, 2,700 over a three-year period at Northwestern, started for three straight years, and then, then opted out. He has two years at right tackle, two, uh, a year at left tackle, only gave up Slater only gave up five pressures in 2019 at Northwestern so yeah I mean there's again there's a lot to like there but I think Panay Sewell's on-field production is unlike anything we've seen and he did it as a freshman and as a sophomore and that's also like you would expect him to be more technically unsound right he's only had two years of playing and they were when he was like a teenager like of course of course he's not going to be technically 100% polished. The fact that he's been able to do that, be as dominant as he was, despite having you know, relatively imperfect technique, is a great thing. Like, you fix that, and now you've got, like, Jonathan Ogden out there. Like, it's a good thing. Um, what's that, you know, the baseball analogy, Steve, right? Two guys run to first base with exactly the same time, one with perfect form, one with crappy form. Which guy do you take? the crappy form guy right because you teach him the right form and suddenly he beats the other guy by like two or three paces that's Panay Sewell if he's able to be as dominant as Slater with less polished technique then why would you not want him because you clean up his technique and now you've got an absolutely dominant you know almost perfect tackle prospect I thought you were going to make a uh, an age analogy for baseball because that you know being a 24 year old in the Sally League or something like that no that's I would never do that because that's embarrassing right you're 24 year old in the Sally League. Those dudes are never going to make it. So, polarizing offensive tackles Panay Sewell, Rashawn Slater. Who else you got? The cornerbacks, I think, always all over the place. We've discussed them a little bit. You want to talk corners? You want to talk the slot receivers? Where do you want to go? Um, let's talk about the slot receivers. By the way, Panay Sewell, in, so over the last two years, they have basically the same. Um, pass blocking efficiency, the same pressure rate. Uh, Sewell has a slightly better grade because he's faced more pass blocking snaps over those two years. Um, so, like, again, like they've been very comparable in terms of their actual production, but one guy was doing it younger, and the fact that he had less polished technique, I think, is a positive in that situation, not a negative. In 2019, here's how close they were. In 2019, per PFF IQ, uh, pass blocking grade on true pass sets. So true pass sets. That's the number that we found at PFF where if you you, you strip out play action, strip out three-step drops, and this is the, the purest form of pass protection and the most predictive going forward. Panay Sewell just edges Rashawn Slater in grade. And Sewell had 141 attempts. Slater had 151. So they were very close. 
Panay Sewell, 86.7 PFF grade. Slater, 86. So, again, Sewell at a younger age. The question mark about, you know, how many great edge rushers do you play, face in the Pac-12, that's, that's legit, mm-hmm. too. So, again, nothing's completely cut and dry. But to me, it's just very surprising that teams are putting Slater over Sewell because it's not your traditional and again, looking tackle. It's when it's happening that's uh, that's aggravating me, right? It's it's not that we've decided Slater is amazing relative to where we thought he was, and he's just climbing up and up and up and up and up. It's it seems to be that people are souring on Panay Sewell for no reason, right? Like nothing about him has changed. His tape has been the same for a year. All of his circumstances are the same, and he was a very heavily evaluated player. You know, like a lot of times we've just reached the point where people are actually diving into a guy's tape, and it's not that he's slipping. The tape hasn't changed. It's that just we've, we're actually looking closer at it now, and that's why he's why a guy is slipping. Like Panay Sewell was a really heavily evaluated guy even before everybody started diving in for like hardcore draft analysis, you know? So the where his evaluation should have been on a really solid foundation before anybody got into it this time. So again, I just don't I don't get why he's falling. All right, let's go to the slot receivers. So right now again, Mike Renner doing the PFF NFL draft board. He has moved Elijah Moore up to 5, wide receiver 5 behind Jamar Chase, Jalen Waddle, Devontae Smith, and Rashad Bateman the now six-foot-tall Rashad Bateman. (laughs) So Elijah Moore is the first receiver on our receiver ranking who is just a pure slot, right? Is he, though? So the question is, is Elijah Moore a pure slot? I think one of the stories... No, also, the question is, A, is Elijah Moore a pure slot? And B, is there a receiver ranked ahead of him who's only a pure slot? Is there? What if Jalen Waddle is just a pure slot? Oh, 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 I got you. I see where you're going. See where I'm going? I see. A vertical slot... Yeah. Field stretching slot receiver. So I think there's two questions here. How high would we be comfortable taking a guy that you know is just going to play in the slot? And then how do we break up the Elijah Moores, Rondell Moores, Kadarius Tonys of the world? Uh, Tutu Atwell's gotten first round hype. He's below those guys on our board by quite a bit. But there's a lot of these slot only receivers. Where do we take them? And why are their rankings and evaluations all over the place? Yeah, I like I, is is Rondell dropping just because he's five seven versus five nine? No, I think he's dropping because even in a world of limited role. So if you're a slot only, you're limited compared with a Devonte Smith who can do everything. Right? Is that fair to say? So yeah. that's it's a more limited role. Even in that world of a more limited role. Rondale's role was even more limited than that. Like his, what he was running at Purdue was like gimmick plays and the occasional post and dig yeah. from the slot, um, which is as bare bones and limited as you're going to find a wide receiver's route tree. Now, it's not as big a problem as it would be if he was supposed to be an outside receiver all the time, and suddenly you had to basically learn the entire route tree from nothing which is kind of where Corey Coleman was a couple of years ago, right? Like you run three things, now you've got to run 15 because you're supposed to play outside. It's not that dramatic because you're still going to have a slot role and you're a, you're a sort of devastating playmaker, so you, we're going to manufacture a lot of these touches for you at the NFL level as well. But I think it is, it's a worthy 
differentiator. So you can say, look, Elijah Moore has done a lot more within his more limited slot role than Rondale Moore has. Um, but on the other hand, like he isn't the freaky explosive athlete that Rondale Moore is. And I know he's like, like Elijah Moore tested really well. Despite four, all three. of his testing, Sam? Right. But look, even he tested really well. But even on that scale, look at it in comparison to Rondale Moore, who like jumped out of the gym. 429, was it, I think? Like, insane. We thought he would test really well, and he tested even more insane than we thought he was going to test. So the question about – so what, what are your thoughts on the question, the question about a slot receiver in the first round? I, I just just most yards from the slot last year in the NFL. Let's, just, let's go through this list. Cole Beasley, uh, C.D. Lamb, who obviously was a first-round player – but I think C.D. Lamb's situation is different. He stepped into a situation that had two wide receivers who played on the outside, and he just happened to right. play in the slot, which poses another question. Do you actually want to go find a slot receiver, or do you want to take one of your better receivers and just line him up <laughs> in the slot? There, yeah. Because, we've, again, our data has found w- why has Michael Thomas been so good? Because maybe, maybe, maybe Michael Thomas isn't the best receiver in the NFL, but if you give him a significant number of slot snaps he goes from very good above average receiver to the most productive right i mean i think we're starting to see a trend and this is in college as well that if you can play well on the outside there are very few wide receivers that can't succeed in the slot right like generally there's a lot of players they're either moved to the slot to generate more favorable matchups or they're moved to the slot because they can't get open anymore and it's free releases and it's occupying space in between zones and all these kinds of things the larry fitzgerald mode right you can move like a guy that just can't survive on the outside anymore move him inside and almost have the second career so i think there's very few players that are viable on the outside but not viable in the slot but the reverse is not true there is a lot of players that are viable from the slot only cannot survive on the outside at which point the value element becomes well what is this guy doing above and beyond the regular receiver that I can just put in the slot and succeed anyway. Here's here's the data to back that up, right? Okay. So if you go to Premium Stats 2.0, this is how you this is how you brainstorm with theories here. You, you get PFF Elite, mm-hmm. and you go to Premium Stats 2.0. Go to go to your slot performance page for wide receivers, right? And what I sorted by initially was just most yards in the slot, and that's a pure volume thing. But if you're talking about efficiency, yards per route run is the way to do it. Yards per route run in the slot last year above a certain threshold. Devontae Adams, he's a wide receiver one. He's an outside receiver. Justin Jefferson, outside receiver now, who excelled in the slot at LSU. Adam Thielen, so two guys in Minnesota. Robbie Anderson, another outside receiver. So the four most productive receivers in the slot were guys that you consider one of their best or second best receivers on the team that that kicked inside. Then there's Cole Beasley, pure slot receiver. Then Terry McLaurin. So five out of the six, right? So do you want to take so I think a first-rounder and use it on an right. Elijah Moore? That is the point to me is that, look, Cole Beasley is probably the best slot receiver in the NFL. Um, and it's not Cole Beasley. It's, you know, it's that type of player. It's, it's Cole Beasley. It's Cooper Cup. It's, you know, those guys, they're valuable. You know, you look at their PFF war numbers, they're very high. But – just an elite wide receiver playing their position does a better job than them. At which point in the draft, you should always be trying to find just an elite wide receiver, a guy that can do everything. Because if you hit on one of them, 
So Dallas is the perfect example. Let's say one stumbles into your lap, and instead of taking a slot receiver, you just draft arguably the best receiver in the draft. I mean, he plays in the slot and does really well. So what's your problem? Like, you lost Cole Beasley, and you replaced him with C.D. Lamb, who can do everything, and including line up in the slot, and you didn't get any worse. In fact, like, it's worked out perfectly. So to me, you should just always if, – if, if you know as a, a guy is limited to just being a slot only – I think that should drop him down significantly because your default should be trying to find a guy that can do the slot and other things. So if you're going to take that guy as a slot only, you need to be 100% convinced that he's bringing something special to the table that offsets the fact that you can just plug in anybody to that job. So, so what does that do for – where do you value these guys? Well, to Elijah. me, that takes them all out of the first round. If you're telling me a guy can't play – on the outside explain so now explain why you don't think elijah Moore. so let me ask you this elijah moore rondell moore Kadarius tony mm-hmm. where do those guys rank for you i know where they rank on the pff draft board it's in that order do you agree with that ranking elijah rondell Kadarius tony no i would have certainly rondell moore ahead of elijah moore really I, yeah I, he so again if you're telling me a guy can only play in the slot i need to see something genuinely special to offset that can Rondell pl- play outside too I don't know but he has special in a way that Elijah Moore doesn't Elijah Moore's good good at everything G- good hands good speed um good toughness good he's good he's good at cross the board he will be a very good slot receiver there is a chance that Rondell Moore can be more than that can be special he has Tyreek Hill-esque burst acceleration speed change of direction like he's got the ability I mean we comped him to I can't, damn, I need to learn that guy's name that had this comp. The guy, the, we comped into Jerry Tawai, right? This freaky rugby sevens player. That, it's your comp now. I know, yeah, but I stole it from somebody. I just yeah, can't remember. Does who he have I stole a podcast? Probably not. Yeah. Anyway, he's got this ability to just like hit a leg as he's running and cut and leave a guy like grasping at nothing. It's freaky. He was the best athlete on the field every time he played a game. That is special to the point where you can say, all right, I will overlook a lot for that. It also gives him a chance to play on the outside that I'm not sure that Elijah Moore has, right? The Tyree kill, if you're going to play on the outside, generally you need to be a bigger wide receiver that can withstand, you know, the physicality of press, co- press coverage from corners. The alternative is you're so freaky quick and, and fast and just um, insane twitch you, you can't get a hand on them. It doesn't matter if you're bigger and, fi- and physically stronger than they are. You can't touch them off the line. It's not going to help. So Tyreek Hill is a perfect example of that, right? Jalen Ramsey covers him one-on-one for almost the whole game. And then a couple of plays, Tyreek Hill beats him off the line with just quick twitch and, and speed, and there's nothing you can do about it. It's a 30-yard catch down the sideline. Rondale Moore has that skill. I don't think that Elijah Moore does. See, when I look at Elijah Moore, though, I think the risk is mitigated because he's just done more receiver things, right? He's he's caught more passes over the middle. He's caught more passes down the field. He's caught uh, a high percentage of contested catches. Elijah Moore mm-hmm. for, at five nine, whatever. Yeah, a lot of a high percentage of contested catches. One of the highest in the draft class. So that's where I look at Elijah Moore and just say, okay, I feel more comfortable with him doing more wide receiver things. But you you're just straight up eliminating him. As an outside receiver. Sterling Shepard yeah. was a guy a couple years ago, I mentioned him the other day, that we we said is a slot first, but could play outside. Not only is there no evidence of him doing it, but there is evidence in his tape that his team doesn't think he can do it, 
which I think is the bigger concern, right? There's not too much evidence of Jalen Waddle or Rondale Moore or any of these other guys doing it, but there's at least not like an active indication that their team doesn't think they're, they're, they can manage it. Rondale or Elijah Moore, most of the time when he lined up outside as a wide receiver, was stacked behind somebody else, like literally to make sure that you could not touch him off the line, or if it wasn't, he was facing off coverage. So they, his own team essentially was trying to manufacture it as much as humanly possible for nobody to get their hands on that guy at the line. Now, I'm not saying that's definitely an indication that he can't do it because, you know, you just don't – why would you want your best receiver getting screwed with at the line of scrimmage in terms of press coverage? Like, it's, it's not a bad thing to want to keep him away from that generally. But it is a potential red flag. It's like, okay, we haven't seen much of him doing this – and any time there was an opportunity for it to happen, you specifically went out there to ensure that it didn't. That, to me, is a pretty obvious sign that I would not expect him to be doing that at the next level. It is a good way to look at things, but the NFL uh, college teams tell you a little bit of what they think of the player, right. the way they use them, right? And it, it can mean different things, right? Like As I say, it, it can mean that they just think he's so important to this offense we don't want to run the risk that somebody can screw that up by jamming him to the line and wrecking everything we're doing. On the other hand, it can be like, all right, we don't really think that this guy can survive press coverage, so let's not let it happen. Kadarius Tony, he reminds me – so I think he's the third of that group, right? Elijah Moore, Rondell Moore, however you want to rank those guys. I, I like Kadarius Tony as third in that group. He reminds me a little bit of Braxton Miller former quarterback becoming a slot receiver yeah there's a bit of that to him I think he'll be better than Braxton Miller Braxton was the guy who just took like four seconds to run a route that was supposed to take two you know so and, and, and that's and that's a tough adjustment from quarterback to receiver uh, guys have done it obviously in the past you know Julian Edelman and but it's a tough adjustment so I think Kadarius Tony though like when you get the ball in his hands so you know he's dangerous so is, is Kadarius Tony closer to say Tavon Austin where it's just pure gimmick player. No. Is he closer to Tavon Austin or Julian Edelman, we'll say, from yeah. a um, so slot I, standpoint? I think you're right that there's definitely plays on his tape where he does the Braxton Miller thing. It's like, oh, wow, that's a devastating string of moves you just, run, you just put together to run a five-yard out. On the other hand, it took four and a half seconds to happen, and the quarterback's going to be dead before you make that final break, so it didn't do us a lot of good. But... They happened very early in his tape. And this is a guy that's extremely young for the position in terms of experience, right? They happened very early in his tape. And the longer you went through chronologically his 2020 season, the more sophisticated his play got and the less of those things you saw, which I think is really encouraging because if you've got a guy that's very inexperienced and has some flaws to his, his or some lack of, lacks some nuance to his game for that position, if you can see an obvious development, like a curve, that's got to be encouraging. So I'm actually kind of bullish on Tony's potential. Like when I first saw him, he reminded me like, what if Dante Hall was six foot tall, right? Remember Dante Hall was like 5'8 or whatever he yeah. was. The human joystick, Kansas City Chiefs back in the day. Um, like Tony moves a lot like that, but he's way bigger. Like he's six foot, 190, something like that. That's like, that's wide receiver outside wide receiver size that's Rashad Bateman size literally like that's what Bateman just measured at. I still choose to believe that Rashad Bateman is 6'2 210 right but they 
they feel like completely different size players, right? Like Rashad Bateman is seen as this true outside player that can be a dominant X receiver. Kadarius Tony is seen as like a small, shifty slot receiver. But I think if, if that height and weight for Tony holds up, I, or holds up, I didn't check his measurements at pro days, they're the same size human. Um, at which point you have to entertain the idea that he can survive on the outside. And I, I think the stuff that he's good at, those freaky option routes where he just sets it up with a, you know, a head fake and then breaks back outside or breaks back inside, like he's almost impossible to cover on those things. So I think he'll be a productive slot. I'm, I'm not ruling out the idea that he could play outside. And I think his curve of development is massively encouraging. So yeah, he was he was just a quarterback slash gimmick player for Florida. Yeah, just a couple of years ago, was, right wasn't until... really a quarterback for a while, but he was a transitioning quarterback who was just a gimmick, get him touches type of player, and then became a slot receiver in this last year and really productive. Yeah, so I I mean I can I can definitely envisage his arrow continuing to go upwards and actually him being a much better player in the pros than he was in, in college because of that. I asked the folks to uh, ask some questions here Ooh, in, that's uh, a mistake. in the that's draft. A mistake. Uh, Renner presents Micah Parsons as a um, polarizing player. Is he? He said Justin Fields, apparently. Mm. <laughs> Definitely a polarizing player. We've discussed him quite a bit. You want to go through the corners? Because you have some disagreement, I know, on, on J.C. Horn versus maybe the consensus. And maybe compared to me. I'll come to you. I like J.C. Horn. I'm in. He's our co- he's our number two cornerback on the board right now. We have Sertan number one. J.C. Horn is has moved up to number two. Caleb Farley has moved down in part due to those injuries. Yeah. J.C. Horn, when I saw him play, reminded me a, a lot of Marcus Peters. Just playmaking ability. And again, I could be completely overrating one or two plays that he made, but he had that ability to to leave his own assignment to go find the football mm-hmm. and pick it off. Marcus Peters does that on the regular in the NFL, and everybody's got a player too where special things happen. But I just thought J.C. Horn has some of the most spectacular plays on film, from that one to the one where he ran through a receiver and tackled the the bubble screen, uh, breaks on the ball, ball magnet, over 95th percentile, forced in completion percentage compared to everyone else in the draft class. I love J.C. Horn. Some people have him as the best corner in the draft. You're lower on him. Why? Um, I question his like fluidity of movement. I think that's one thing that jumps out with a lot of these other guys. Um, I question your fluidity of movement. Uh, you're right, too. I don't have much at the okay, moment. Okay, good. Yeah. Very, very stiff Plus, I torched right you deep that one time. No, that's ridiculous. Anyway, very stiff-hipped right now. I, I would question my fluidity of movement as well. Um, yeah, look, I... I just think there's some question marks about I, I I think he's very scheme-specific in a way some of these other guys aren't. You can plug Patrick Sertan into whatever scheme you want, you will run on defense, and he will be very, very good. Caleb Farley, I think, has some special skills in terms of burst, in terms of makeup speed, all those kinds of things. I think he fits in any scheme. J.C. Horn, I think if you're not having him play press man coverage, aggressive physical coverage on the outside, I don't love his ability to like flip his hips, move in tight spaces, and just generally mirror and stick with uh, receivers if he can't get his hands on them. And I think that limits you. I just don't love that that much because there aren't that many teams that play that style of coverage all the time. Look, I, I get it. So the other part of the reason why I 
gave him a Marcus Peters comp is because he, he'll give up some yards too. Hmm. So there is some some boomer bust to Horn's game. So I think – And by the way, his his tape against Alabama in 2019, like he just got wrecked by those guys. And yeah. those are – now I know, look, that four first-round wide receivers, it's a hell of a challenge for anybody. But because of that, they represent what you're going to be meeting in the NFL. Those are two – Devontae Smith and Jerry Duty in particular – those guys are two NFL caliber route runners, and they put J.C. Horn in an absolute blender, and if, like that—that's concerning. If I describe if I describe a J.C. Horn to you, uh, in, or Marcus Peters to you, do you instantly think, well, if he's the second corner on a team, that's going to play a little bit better because you're gonna you can be you can deal with a guy who's going to give up some yards yeah. if he's going to create right. turnovers. I mean, obviously, having a Marcus Peters, if that's what he ends up being, it's not a bad thing. It's a good return for a draft pick. Right? Am I crazy for making that comparison, or do you just no, think he's I, far below I, I a Marcus Peters I think it makes Peters sense, type? but I, I think there's a reason that multiple teams have given up on Marcus Peters already, you know, have moved him on and decided that actually, you know what, well, we want to try and find something different. Um, like, Marcus Peters does a lot well, and he's talented, but you need a Marlon Humphrey to be able to take to, to be able to take the toughest assignments and let Marcus Peters try and be that impact playmaker and generate some turnovers for you I, I just think if JC Horn comes in he's your number one corner and you don't run a an aggressive press man coverage game on the outside I don't know that that's going to go that well for you you want to go through this uh, YouTube feed here and answer some questions okay uh Kadarius Tony to some comments found his measurements pro day 511 and 5 eighths does that round up to six do we call him six foot? Five one one five. You mean? I. It's not how it's listed here, Steve. <laughs> that, by the way, is almost exactly what I am. I've been trapped in this world of being like just not six foot, just enough oh, you, round that you up. can't claim Definitely it. Definitely round up. Um, so five eleven and five eights and one hundred ninety three pounds. So he's basically exactly Rashad Bateman's size. No, Rashad Bateman is six feet one ninety. Wow, him and Tony are the same size. That's what I'm telling you. I need a moment. Yeah. So all I'm saying is... This look, is a life changer. Elijah Moore is 5'9", with zero evidence that he can survive against press coverage. Kadarius Toney is six foot 190-plus and has the kind of shiftiness that make him extremely difficult. So, like, everybody's acting as if Kadarius Toney is a slot only. What if he's Stevie Johnson? Like, what if he's a guy that has that wiggle to him and can play outside and beat press coverage because of it and cause like, the likes of Darrell Rivas and Richard Sherman a never-ending nightmare? Explain Stevie because Johnson. Because he moves in a weird way. I, I know your your thoughts on Stevie Johnson. Explain your thought. Explain what you saw from Stevie Johnson and remind everybody who he is. Stevie Johnson. He's like early PFF days, yeah. really good receiver for the Bills. Wide receiver for the Buffalo Bills who gave the best cornerbacks in the NFL the most trouble that any wide receiver in the NFL gave them despite not being the best wide receiver in the NFL, right? Nobody caused more problems for Richard Sherman and Darrell Rivas than Stevie Johnson, even though many wide receivers were better than Stevie Johnson. And the reason for that is because he moved in a freaky way. Like, he had basketball movement skills and traits, and it made him an absolute freaking nightmare to try and cover one-on-one -on -one in man coverage. Kadarius Toney has a lot of that to him as well. And I think part of that is how you defeat press coverage, right? If, if you can't trust how a guy is going to move, it makes it very difficult to have confidence in being aggressive and jamming that guy at the line. Because if you screw it up and he takes a half step the other way, you just punched air and suddenly he's got two yards on you and he stacked you and you're screwed. 
Uh, the, the last let's just hit on those last couple polarizing players that that Renner mentioned. Micah Parsons, we talked about a little bit, but um, just the fact that he's he's an excellent run defender. Question marks about him in coverage because of what he was asked to do at Penn State. Plus linebacker value maybe dropping, and you don't know if he's going to be a top ten player or fall into the twenties. Who knows? Mm-hmm. But his teammate Jason Owe from Penn State, pull up his measurable Sam while I'm chatting through this because. The edge defender class, as we mentioned yesterday, and then on the PFF NFL Daily today, we actually had to debate who's the best defensive prospect in this draft. Usually there's a guy or two. We went through a whole bunch of names who could be the best defensive prospect. So go check out the PFF NFL Daily if you haven't already. But Jason Owe is a guy. Another one only has 744 total snaps. In 2019, he looked like just a pass rush specialist because he could just get after the quarterback pretty well. And then he had a run defense grade of 59, which is horrible. And you watched him getting absolutely crushed at the point of attack in 2019. But he comes back in 2020 with almost the same pass rush grade, 80, but zero sacks. And then an 89 run defense grade. So Elway has just been everything as far as a player goes. He's a bad run defender, and then he improved. He's been the same pass rusher, but his sack totals disappeared. And then when he tested... It's like a Madden creative player. Six foot five, 257 pounds, ran a 4.36.40. Now, this was Penn State. He's an edge. This was Penn State 4.36. On the decline, yeah. Which is apparently, your, your buddies over there at the 33rd NFL team. Or 33rd so, team, there yeah. You go. They said that on average, Penn State's pro day is, I think, 3% faster than the combine times. Yeah. So if you inflate that 3%, it's more like a 4-4 something, right? So, but it's still freaking ridiculous. Right. Um, but not quite, you know, 4-3-6. Uh, what else? Uh, arms, long, 34.5 inch. Explosiveness, 39.5 inch vertical. 11 feet, 2 inches broad jump. Those are both absurd numbers for anybody, let alone a 257-pound edge rusher. So, yeah, basically blew the doors off in terms of pro day testing. Just just crazy. I mean, so Owe is the guy. He's polarizing because you can read out those numbers and say, okay, that's great. And then somebody's going to come back and say, well, he's had five sacks over the last two years, including zero in 2020. And then you're going to come back and say, yeah, but he won at a reasonably high level. And somebody's going to come back and say, yeah, but did you see him 2019 against the run when Ohio State tackle and guard double team was taking him you know, into the stands? So... Jason Owe is all over the place. He does have the burst and the get-off and the athleticism absolutely show up on film. And my my notes on him are just that his agility, which, again, shows up in the text, uh, testing, the agility is just too much for tackles. He's one of those guys who just wins with athleticism at the point of attack. But Owe is going to be a, a polarizing guy because he'll be all over the place. You're going you're gonna to look at sack production. You're going to look at PFF production. You're going to look at the workout stuff and he'll be all over the place especially in a wide open edge class yeah all right you want to go through some of this youtube chat and just let's just respond have you been like looking at this or a little we, bit waiting into this somebody made this? a Kadarius tony percy harvin comp eh. i hate all percy harvin comps because yeah. i just think his he's a unique player that i've never seen anybody operate like i think his that, strength and power were yeah. just different. honestly rondale moore is closer to percy harvin than Kadarius tony is um the one thing I, the thing that I thought was unique about Percy Harvin that I've never really seen anybody else do is he had zero thinking time between getting the ball and immediately going 
to in a straight line as fast as humanly possible to the area that would maximize yardage for him, right? When you throw somebody else a hitch, there's like a brief second where they have to think about where the space is, which way they're going to spin to maximize return or even set up a corner to like make him go to the wrong side and then go back the other side and gain yardage. Harvin never did that. He would catch and immediately turn and go and had this sixth sense about where like where the the shortest lines, the shortest straight line was between where he was and where he could get to before he was going to get tackled. And just the speed with which he did that would screw with people's angles because they're waiting for people to, you know, have that hesitation and set them up and do all those things. And Harvin just didn't. So he would catch it and go and you'd be like, crap, I was waiting for him to do his little shimmy and it never happened. I've never seen anybody as decisive with the ball in their hands as Percy Harvin was, like ever. And I, I've, I've never even seen anybody else really come close to that. I honestly can't believe you. We, 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 we talked a few weeks ago about have you ever seen Alabama, uh, a group of wide receivers like Alabama had? And maybe not pure wide receivers, but can you believe what Florida put on the field at one point? <laughs> With Percy Harvin, who you just said, unicorn. Yeah. Jeff Demps, a an Olympic sprinter. Chris Rainey, who was in between Percy Harvin and Jeff Demps as a player. Aaron Hernandez, of course, know what he was as a player. Hmm. And then Tim Tebow, as the quarterback, who was as unique as it gets back then as well, right? Like here's this fullback who could I mean, plus like the throw uh, it a little bit. Plus like the ancillary elements to that team, like Pouncey's uh, Cam Newton sitting there in the background as a right. backup quarterback. <laughs> Cam Newton backing up Tim Tebow. Yeah, like that the collection of people that they had on that roster was just madness. Yeah, and they so, also have um, who's the former Eagles wide receiver got himself into some, you know, Riley Cooper. There you go. Yeah, wasn't he on that team as well? Yeah, Riley Cooper, Lewis Murphy, and yeah. uh, David Nelson, all guys that were effective NFL receivers it was it was nuts but as far as like the mismatch type of weapons that Florida had was was just crazy the only thing I'll, I'll go through the feed a little bit somebody's saying why are you judging Mac Jones based off of athleticism at QB I think the bigger issue is just outside of structure plays versus some of the other guys instincts yeah. and, and also feel. like I think we've reached this point where the league has developed to the stage where it's harder to succeed if you are just an immobile, non-athletic quarterback. It's not to say you can't, right? But the like everyone's saying, well, look at Tom Brady, just won a Super Bowl despite being a statue. Sure, but Tom Brady's the greatest quarterback to ever play. This idea of chasing unicorns, I think, gets you into trouble. If your comp for a guy is a unicorn player, it's probably not a great thing to be doing. If you can give me a... So, you know, Nate Tice from the Athletic uh, Football Podcast, he's had this, like, bit slash genuine shtick this offseason that I love, which is comping players to, like, good, solid NFL players that people take as an insult, you know? Because yeah, they're yeah. not superstars. Because everybody's right. draft comp is like an all-pro. Like, this right. guy comps to Jason Taylor. This guy comps to whatever. Like, yeah. the, the next Randy Moss. Like, whereas he's just like, this guy's Jermaine Wiggins. That one's like, <laughs> that's disgusting. You insult me. He's so much better than that. Jermaine Wiggins was a good tight end for a number of years in the NFL. Wiggy. If your random draft prospect turns out to be Jermaine Wiggins, you did well, right? So all of his things are like that. So if you're looking at Mac Jones and being like, his path to success is being Tom Brady 2.0, you've lost me. If you're telling me that his path to success looks more like Chad Pennington, all right, now we can talk because that's – more realistic that's attainable i can work with that 
But like, if you're saying that in order to, you know, for him to be really good, he has to be another unicorn. It's just a bad way of doing it, I think. I just love. Does that make sense? Yeah, makes perfect sense. I think chasing unicorns as a concept is not a great way of doing things. I think that's a perfect way to. Is that worth expounding upon the unicorn thing? Because you've been who is it? We've been talking about this for a while. Who's the Florida? Is it? Well, who's the Florida coach? He was saying that he was talking about Kyle Pitts, and he was saying that the only way of he's a unicorn. Dan the only way of taking out a one unicorn is with another unicorn. Dan Mullen dueling unicorns. That was his, yeah. That's you're saying you there's would, no defensive unicorn? That that's can the only way you can cover Kyle, Kyle Pitts, Pitts is find yourself a defensive unicorn. I've been the one. I've, I've, I've coined the term tight end eraser yeah. on the defensive side of the well, ball. Well, that's not good enough. You need there's a unicorn. No, you need a unicorn eraser yeah. for, uh, for Kyle Pitts. So is, who are the unicorns in the draft? Is, it only, is Kyle Pitts the only one? I mean, I think Kyle Pitts is the most obvious um, or the one. Like, again, it's, if you're chasing unicorns, it's probably not a good strategy. But if you're... If you're identifying what these guys do well, what, what's unique about them, I think Kyle Pitts is the closest description of what is likely to become a unicorn. Like, can you think of another genuine wide receiver, tight end, tweener hybrid in the way that we're describing Kyle Pitts, which is can be good at both of them? Tony Gonzalez? I mean, was he ever – you couldn't – could you really line Tony Gonzalez up as a true X receiver and let him play as a wide receiver and have that be? His? I mean, it depends on how. Like, if you, I think the closest, if Gronk was just a receiver, or if Travis Kelsey was just a receiver, or Jimmy Graham, like the, those guys would produce. The closest I can think of in terms of a prospect being described this way is Kellen Winslow, too. True. No, I would agree with that. I would now, say he never became particularly good at either of them. I would so, say on field, if you want an on field production, a production comp. Production. Production comp, I'm losing it too. Did you get a vaccine as well? Jimmy Graham might be the best on field, not body type necessarily, but Graham has, what, 25, 30 pounds yeah. on um, Kyle Pitts. Not that, but yeah. as far as usage pattern. But he, but he is a prohibitively bad blocker and always has been. I don't think Kyle Pitts will be that. I don't know, man. I mean, Pitts, I'm not saying, I, I don't know about prohibitively bad, but Pitts is not going to be a Good I don't think it'd be a good, blocker. but I think like so. The difference between Jimmy Graham and Travis Kelsey in terms of blocking is substantial. Like Jimmy Graham is a genuine joke as a blocker. Like apps, there are plays there where you're like, why are you even bothering? Like just release. There's no point in you doing what you're doing. It's actually harming the offense being this bad because we're relying on you executing this block, and you not even trying makes it worse than if you weren't even relying on it. I used to play pickup soccer with a guy, right, who would make these runs into attacking positions, but was so bad, even if you got the ball to him, he would never actually control it or make any use. So we used to have this debate of, would you rather have him on your team or the space that the le- that one fewer player would give you? And the answer was the space, because you weren't putting the ball into the random space where there was nobody there, and therefore were better off overall. Jimmy Graham is that as a blocker, right? Not having you accounted for in the blocking scheme is better than assuming you're going to execute a routine block watching you whiff and you know, sit there aimlessly watching a dude run straight past you and hit the quarterback. Like, I don't think Pitts is going to be that. And so I don't Pitts think, is better than space yes, as a block. And I don't think Travis Kelsey is as bad as that. In fact, he isn't. I mean, it's, that's not a thing. That he just isn't. So I, just, I think the difference between those two is massive. And I think Pitts skews more towards the Travis Kelsey side than he does the Jimmy Graham side. Let's wrap it up with this. Somebody does mention Divine Diablo 
safety from Virginia Tech, is Good a name. unicorn. Good name. Looked him up um, just to confirm the actual numbers. 6'3", 226. Talking Sean Taylor size here. 6'3", mm-hmm. 226, 442, 40. He almost had the Trey Wayne's 40 is better than the, <laughs> than the shuttle. 4'4", four, four, shuttle, 4'4", four, four, 40 times. So the shuttle barely faster. 14th percentile 20-yard shuttle but an 89th percentile 40-yard dash at 226. So that's great. Um, it's always a good podcast when you can pull out Jermaine Wiggins, East Boston's finest. It's where my parents are from, East Boston, home of the greatest pizza in the world, Centapio's, by the way. What I always loved about him is that the accent never went. Oh, it's thick and strong. And right? he tried to leap everybody. Yeah. You know how usually like you're a great athlete when you try to leap over people? Yeah. Wiggy just did it well, all he, the time right. he at looked, 260. Him and uh, him and Brandon Manumaliuna were these like giant – you know, jelly looking tight ends who for some reason like dancing bears, you know, had the the like had designs on freaky, you know, I can fly things in their head and kept like trying to leap people or sidestep them. It was yeah, it was kind of mad. Okay. Somebody just asked us a question on Twitter. Let's wrap it up with this. You're gonna get just I just lost in this forever, aren't you? Yes. I love the, I just love doing the PFF NFL podcast. I love talking football and interacting with all of our thousands and millions of fans. Uh, Andy Hay on Twitter, not necessarily a draft question, but he says, if you were to run a front office, what would be the percentage of how much you would use analytics versus traditional scouting and team building methods and what NFL teams have the best balance? I won't necessarily answer the team question. What do you think that balance is? Like what, what, how would you, how would you use traditional versus quote unquote analytics? Um, I don't think we're there yet in terms of knowing what the balance is. I mean, this is, this has been the interesting journey that we've been on at PFF when we started doing college football is that we started doing this in 2014. So obviously right off the bat, you need to start like creating draft content, right? This is our take on the draft coming at it from like zero knowledge. We had no idea what the grading meant, right? Did it mean it was going to translate directly? Like a good college player is going to be a good NFL player regardless of what happens? Just follow the grading? Does it mean almost nothing? It's all athleticism and the grading is just a tiny little part. And we're still learning. Like, we've at least learned that it's neither of those two extremes. A great athlete is not going to become a great NFL player if he was a bad player most of the time. And a guy that's great in grading is not going to be a great NFL player if he's a horrific athlete most of the time. So we've at least, like, eliminated the two extremes, but we're still playing with the balance of what each thing means and how much to lean on. So, I mean, I I think ultimately you just – go where the data tells you but we don't know yet it's not a clean answer and here's here's how i'll describe it because this is what i'm trying to build from a product standpoint you take all the information in including scouting you know uh, scouting reports but you want to try to convert everything to the same number so to speak so pff production so the you you look at the PFF data and say, okay, in a vacuum, if you just use PFF data, how close would you get? And certain positions are way stronger than others, right? Like edge defenders, defensive line, offensive line's pretty good, QB's pretty good. So you just if you just use PFF data in a vacuum to project players, you find out what that baseline is, right? And then you stack the other things on top of it, but you have to almost just convert it to the same number. You throw it into the soup, so to speak, and see what comes out of it so can you quantify scouting reports yeah you can you can look at a guy's historical scouting reports and quantify them and see how well their descriptions of players or their analysis of players 
have done. You could take traits into the equation as long as it's quantified. And you might say, for instance, look, you, all you need is PFF defensive line grades and then a little bit of traits analysis on top of that, and you're going to hit 90% of the time. Whereas a corner, you might say, well, PFF grade plus traits is going to get you there 50% of the time. And then you stack on top of that maybe the analysis of the words of the scouting report, and that gets you to 60%. You know what I mean? So it's like take all this information, height, weight, speed, pro day, combine, roll it all into the mix, and each position will kind of have its own formula, so to speak, for how to weigh those things. So the answer is use all the information possible. And I think what Moneyball did, what Moneyball did is it created this picture that it's one versus the other. That it's analytics versus scouting. It's the fat scout who's talking about a guy's girlfriend and how the dude looks in jeans. And then it's the computer dorks who are just writing algorithms and never watch film. When obviously it's a blend of the two. And then the data will tell you kind of like where to where to focus. Got it? Yeah. Um, another, PFFIQ. We're making it happen. Another potential unicorn, by the way. Um, Jacob Harris at UCF's Pro Day put up some absurd numbers. So six foot five, uh, was he two twenty ish, something like that? Yeah, six foot five, two hundred nineteen pounds. Position uh, for those ran one sec, ran a forty yard dash in four three nine. Again, had an eleven plus foot broad jump, a forty and a half inch vertical, uh, and had fifteen reps on the bench. So, I am all for turning people like that into positionless freaks just letting him go he's just a guy yeah just a guy that you figure out what to do with him yeah you know like the old college football game where you draft athlete or recruit athletes yes i dig draft athletes draft them let's debate figure it that out later let's debate that on another podcast because i think the the, the 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 question that i just answered which is like how do you weigh this versus that i think there's an honest question from a draft strategy standpoint what do you do on day three what do you do rounds four through seven do you go with the freak athlete who doesn't play football all that well? Do you go with a guy who's been crazy productive? Do you diversify your portfolio, as I always like to say? So anyway, loving the draft discussion, loving the uh, the emails everybody's bringing. So, so keep that going. The emails uh, could easily just spark an entire podcast if it's uh, if it, not so much if it's well thought out, but if the topic is good. So um, appreciate everybody for tuning in. Again, this was a PFF NFL podcast bonus show. We're going three times a week. So this is our Friday show. We'll be back again on Monday with some more NFL draft discussion. For now, get to PFF.com, grab your PFF Edge or Elite package. We'll see you guys on Monday. Monday.